Bible pronunciation app? Well, I used to, you know, I used to say, people sometimes say, why you read all those names so fluently? And I say, yeah, I'm just making that up. So I used to say Haggai, but it's at here. Let me see if I can get him to do it for you. Haggai. So the guy on my phone says it's just Haggai. Did you, did you hear that? Yeah, here we go. Haggai. Okay, so we're going to go with Haggai. So open your Bible to Haggai. And we'll take a look at that book tonight, great little book. Start off with a story. We had, uh, most of you know this story, or parts of it at least, we had paid off the land we purchased some years ago in record time. We were in meetings with architects, and we had a great floor plan. A bank specializing in Christian organizations. Did you know there were such things? Banks that specialize in Christian organizations? They were willing to lend us up to a million dollars. And so we were pretty stoked until the cost estimates started coming in to build a very basic, no frills, bare bones, metal building within which we'd still have to hold multiple services was going to cost us about three and a half million dollars, mostly because there were site improvements, you know, things like that. No problem, said the architects, just start a capital campaign and get your people to dig deep, like China. I mean, three and a half million dollars, a lot of money. It was a watershed moment for us, really. I'd seen lots of other churches start asking for money, even other Calvaries. In fact, the counsel I was receiving from a lot of guys was to put pressure on the congregation because this was obviously God's will. It was really, really hard to get up that one Sunday morning and announce that our building project was on an indefinite hold. It seemed like a failure, it really did. And some folks saw it that way. <clears throat> Why buy land? Why go through all this process if we're not going to be able to build on it? It was really um, kind of a defeat, it felt like at least. But once our eyes were off the problem, so to speak, off of the new construction, the problem of how to raise three or four million dollars, we saw that there were facilities avail- available for us to purchase. And this facility, for example, which was more than twice as big as what we were looking at building at less than a fourth the cost. And so, um, praise the Lord, right? Amen. The rest is history. I was reminded of all this because Haggai has a passage that is often used out of context, I think, during a church building project. It's in uh, chapter one, it's verses two through five. Let me read it to you. It says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, This people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That seems straightforward enough. God's house was being neglected while the people built their own spectacular homes. And that's true enough, that was happening, but I think we need to understand that the temple in Jerusalem was a slightly more significant structure than any church building project. A better application of Haggai would be to look at our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit and at our church body as a whole as his dwelling place. The temple in Jerusalem was a very special structure where God's presence literally dwelt among his people, his physical presence in the form uh, of the Shekinah glory of God. And, and I, I just don't, 
I can't see connecting a, a church building project with this exhortation unless it's the spiritual building project that is going on today in our lives. And so we'll approach this from that point of view. Haggai called upon God's people to review their progress in rebuilding the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, Here's a brief sketch of the events leading up to his exhortation. The temple was destroyed by the invading Babylonian armies in 586 BC. Long series we did in Jeremiah led up to the third and final siege of Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonian armies. They took captives, they burned the city, they destroyed the temple. As exiles in Babylon for 70 years, the Jews were without a temple and obviously without their sacrifices. Babylon was then conquered by the Medes and Persians. We Bible commentators sometimes refer to as the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, gave permission for about 50,000 Jews to return to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel as their leader and accompanied by Joshua the high priest and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Sacrifices were reinstituted on a rebuilt altar for burnt offerings, and in the second year of the return, the foundation of the temple was laid. However, Samaritan harassment and eventual Persian pressure brought a halt to the rebuilding of the temple. After that happened, spiritual indifference set in among the people, and then for about 16 more years, until the reign of Persian king Darius, or Darius, uh, the construction of the temple was completely discontinued and left alone. In the second year of Darius, it's about 520 B.C., historians say, God raised up Haggai the prophet to encourage the Jews in the rebuilding of the temple. His task was to arouse the leaders and the people of Judah from their spiritual apathy and indifference and to encourage them to restart the, pro- <coughs> the project. Excuse me. Haggai is the first of the three post-exile prophets who ministered in Judah to the tiny community established after the Jews were permitted to return to their homeland. Twelve minor prophets, the first nine of them minister before the Babylonian uh, exile. The last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, minister to the Jews in Jerusalem after the return. That's how it's split up. Haggai, whose name means, means festal or festival, appears briefly in Judah to accomplish a very specific mission. His carefully dated sermons focus our attention on a four-month period in 520 B.C. when he called God's people to complete rebuilding of the temple. The Jews were dedicated to rebuilding the temple, but they had discontinued it due to difficulty. And then once they were out of, sort of, I guess, out of the habit, you might even say, they grew indifferent and they didn't think of returning to it. And I would suggest to you and to myself, of course, that this pattern can and does occur in the lives of believers today in the church. Dedication is always confronted with difficulty. If you want to walk with the Lord, if you want to do a work for God, if there's something on your heart, then it's going to be met with opposition. It's never going to be smooth sailing. Sometimes, and this would be a generalization, and so you'd have to apply it to your own life, but If your life is completely smooth sailing, that means the devil is leaving you completely alone, and and you, you may not be doing anything, you may not be accomplishing anything for the kingdom of God, because you're not, you're not a threat to him. 
<clears throat> dedication is confronted with difficulty. And difficulty, if we don't meet it spiritually with uh, perseverance, can lead to indifference, which causes you to discontinue your spiritual building project. And so that's our point of contact here with Haggai. We want to look at our own lives and make sure that we're still growing and building for the Lord despite the difficulties that we've encountered and maybe any apathy that is set in. Hey, it's the first of the year, and uh, whether you make fun of or whether you embrace the idea of resolutions, we're familiar with New Year's resolutions, they are an admission that we grow indifferent during the year. We, We essentially say there are some things I really wanted to do, some things I should have done things that would be good for me, especially in the spiritual arena, I'm going to try and do them now. I'm going to, with renewed energy, I'm going to download that program Gino was talking about or, you know, start the reading. And the first time I get behind, I'm going to get caught up. And the third time I get behind, I'm just going to stay behind and catch up, you know, where everybody else is. And then by October, maybe, if, you, if we get that far, it's like, man, I, I'm still in Exodus, I had a long ways to go to finish this out. And then we rededicate ourselves to because that's just, that, that's just the nature of things. And so, um, you know, we, it, it, as far as some things go, it, it can be a little bit comical, but in, in some areas of our Christian life, it's a much more serious. And so, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, they had returned with real dedication to rebuild, 50,000 strong, but opposition had risen up against them. They interpreted the difficulties as a sign from God they were to quit, but they were wrong. As I said, of course there would be opposition. They ought to have expected it. They were doing a spiritual work for God and the enemies of God, inspired by supernatural forces, were bound to come against it and to come against them. And so again, I want to emphasize, if you are in the will of God, You expect difficulties and you dedicate yourself to press forward. You resolve the problem of interpreting difficulties by knowing that the project you are dedicated to is God's will. Well, I'll give some examples at the end here of of some of the projects that I'm talking about and and you'll see, oh yeah, I I know what the will of God is in those areas. And if I face opposition in those areas, I just need to press forward. I need to keep moving. Sometimes you might press for something that you want that is not really God's will, but that's for another message. Uh, that's a, a different subject altogether. When difficulties are allowed to defeat your dedication, you will grow indifferent and become complacent. Excuses are the evidence of complacency. You start making excuses for falling off in your dedication to serve the Lord. The Jews said it wasn't the Lord's time to build. We sometimes say we don't have the time. We have a lot of excuses for accepting the status quo in our spiritual lives. Um, I, I don't know. You know. Everybody has, I don't need to lecture you about time. I probably need to lecture myself about time. We all have the same amount of time. Some people seem to get a lot done. Some people don't seem to get much done. Uh, you always have time for the things that are the most important. And um, if that's the Lord then we should be doing things with and for the Lord. I think every Christian, every sincere Christian, if you know, asked by the man on the street, what are your priorities? They would say Jesus first, uh, then family, you know, then church, job, you know, down the line. 
and that's, that's true. And uh, as long as that's true, then we should be spending a whole lot of time with Jesus in church with our family, right? <laughs> they all kind of come together in that one trifecta. And, uh, so, but uh, I've seen a lot of people over the years say, well, you know, Jesus comes first and, and, and my family is second, uh, but I'm not really spending enough time with my family, so we're going to quit going to church and we just spend time as a family together. And we don't really talk about God when we're together, but, but we know that Jesus is at the center of it. And so even though we're never at church and we, we don't serve the church and we don't serve at all, uh, this is, Jesus is still first to us and church is, is third but it's a distant third, and you know where I'm coming. So those three things, they all come together, Jesus, church, the family. Um, and priorities are interesting. I remember Don McClure, who we love. You know, the, you can make a list of priorities, and you should, uh, but sometimes, you know, you, and those of you who are on call for different jobs and stuff or, or in emergency services, you know, uh, your priorities get messed up by life. You know, I mean, you, you might have a priority of this right now, but this is happening, and that has to be dealt with. Uh, and so, generally speaking, we keep our priorities in line, uh, but we need to check them from time to time and say, hey, if, if Jesus is my number one priority, would I, could I really discern that from looking at my life? If my life were just under review, would anybody say, man, it looks to me like Jesus is your number one priority? And if not, not that you want to do things to be seen, but I think you understand what I'm saying. So, you know, sometimes you look at your life and you think, wow, I, no one would even know that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ based on how I'm living right now. And so we need to make those adjustments. Um, verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Once the building project at the temple stopped, the Jews turned to their own homes their enemies did not oppose them building in their own homes, only God's temple. As long as the Jews were like everyone else, pursuing the things everyone else pursued, they were no real threat. In other words, as long as they conformed to the world, they were left alone to pursue the things of the world. Rather than making an impact on the world around them, the world was making an impact on them. Verse 5, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but don't have enough. You drink, you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Seems like they were spinning their wheels. They weren't getting anywhere in this situation. They're not able to find satisfaction in the things of the world. The people of God can never truly be satisfied in or by the world. We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our values must be spiritual and eternal. You know, there's always a step of faith, right, when you're dealing with the Lord. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, the Jews, they were, they were working harder and slaving away and trying to do, you know, all these things. But the, the more they worked, the less they had. And the, the thinking was, well, we don't have time. You know, we already have so little. We don't have enough food to eat or it's not satisfying us and, and all of this. And you want us to go back and work on the temple like like volunteer to go in and work and also give our resources toward that, well, then we'll have even less. I mean, right now we don't have enough to eat and I'm working like a dog. How is it that I'm going to work less and work on the temple and volunteer time and even give money? How's that going to help me? I'm going to be even worse off. But from a spiritual point of view, we understand, well, no, then God will begin to bless you. How? I can't say. 
And so a lot of times you have to make that, that step of faith and say, okay, Lord, I don't see how you're going to even provide if I do this, but you're calling me to do this, so I'm going to do it. And, and I'm going to have to uh, trust you on this and uh, you know, put you to the test, as we'll read about in Malachi. And so, you know, the, the idea that we have to wait until everything is good and right and flowing in order to really serve God because, you know, otherwise everything else is going to fall apart. Hey, everything is going to fall apart because we're not serving God. Because God says, I, I have to withdraw from this situation and let you go your own way and the world will never satisfy you or fulfill you. Consider your ways, he says in verse 7. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in and be glorified, says the Lord. Consider your ways is the phrase that best summarizes Haggai. He uses the word consider four times in his four messages in these two chapters. Consider your ways, or as I'm suggesting, review your spiritual building project for progress. Uh, verse 9, you look much... You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. I don't want to get into this too much because it sounds, um, I haven't, well, because I haven't thought it through and I always get in trouble when I don't think things through, but it's, I'm going to say it anyway because you're my friends, but I'm seeing a lot, I'm hearing a lot and seeing a lot, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or in churches, everybody's praying right now for water, for rain, right, because of the drought. Pray that the heavens would open and the, the rainfall figures are horrible. Now, we're in a different dispensation than the Jews were. We can't always make a direct correlation between the weather and our spiritual condition. In Deuteronomy, God said, when it doesn't rain, it's because I'm withholding rain because you're not obeying me. You're not doing the things that I want you to do. That's at least a possibility still today. It, there's not a direct correlation we can't, always, we can't say that every drought or every famine is the result of God's kind of a thing. But I would like to throw out there the idea that if we're going to pray for rain, that we would first of all look within and make sure that we're walking with the Lord and, and, that, that, and that we can honestly say, hey, as far as I can tell, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians uh, and, and God is not withholding as a result of uh, you know, our lack of uh, spirituality. Verse 9, you look for much, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Uh, so the Lord takes responsibility with uh, this situation. God has saved you for something greater than the things that this world has to offer. By his marvelous providence, he will reveal to you the emptiness of living for yourself the glories of living for him. You see their obedience in verse 12 where it says, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Key word in verse 12 is obvious, it's obeyed. Rededication is simply submitting to God by obeying his word. God's word is usually pretty obvious when you disobey, it's usually not because you don't understand God's word, but because you won't submit to God's word as a rule of life and conduct. 
Christians convince themselves that they're unable to obey God's word when in truth they are unwilling to obey it. They convince themselves that God is withholding the power they need to obey. Just the opposite is true. God's word commands and compels you and it empowers you and enables you. One dear saint put it like this, I know the power obedience has of making things easy which seem impossible. That's the attitude that you need to adopt. So whenever I encounter something in the word that I know I ought to do or I I must do, I have to believe that God is empowering me to do it. The idea that I can't do it is foreign to the Bible, more so the idea that I won't do it or I'm afraid to do it. Now, in the months following the resumption of Reconstruction, the Lord gave Haggai messages of encouragement for the builders. Chapter 2, verse 3, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts once more, it is a little while and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That's a reference to Christ. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So in this passage, uh, Haggai, is, he's thinking about the current temple, but he's also looking ahead to the future millennial temple. He says in verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Perhaps recalling the discouragement that had helped end the earlier efforts, Haggai acknowledged that this second temple would lack the grandeur of Solomon's temple, but he gave assurance that God was with them and that he had great plans for this new temple. Solomon had built a magnificent temple using the plans of David. That temple was destroyed, burned down. When they came back in their weakened condition, under Zerubbabel and built what sometimes is called Zerubbabel's temple, a plain cedar structure. Uh, There were old timers who looked at it and cried because it, it was so lacking in grandeur. It was not what they expected at all. And this passage is saying, hey, this is what the Lord is doing right now. And the grandeur of the temple has to do with the presence of God in it, not with the structure itself. And that's why, that's why we, we're always walking a tightrope when, you know, if you're really, if you, once you own a building or build a building, you're always walking kind of a tightrope because you want to have a nice, comfortable facility that's excellently appointed, but you have to draw the line so that you're, you're really still teaching people by example that We, the people, are the body of Christ. We are the building of the Lord. We could meet anywhere uh, and still know the glory of God. It's exciting to have buildings. I mean, I'm thrilled that we've been here for 10 years in this building and all the, you know, we're still doing lots of fun things here. It's great coming to work and and, uh, we love it. Um, But, you know, this is not the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence doesn't glow here at night when we leave. That's just something we left on, you know. <laughs> We're the building of God, and, and so we want to we keep that in mind. And, and um, that's what's so hard about, that's what's so, well, hard is not the right word. It's so sad, I guess, about some building projects because 
you end up beating up the real church in order to build the not church. You know, you, you, you like, you know, the people are the church and you're just treating them like an object and you're treating the building as if it was organic, that, that it deserves certain things. And so it's hard. I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not criticizing anybody. It's a very hard thing. The argument Haggai made was profound. The discouragers were looking back at the grandeur of the former temple when they should have been looking forward to the glory of God in the temple. In the meantime, it is glory, not grandeur, that ought to be the focus, the presence of God among his people that is glorious. The encouragement Haggai gave was to keep looking forward beyond even their present situation to the ultimate fulfillment of an eternal plan of which they were an integral part. Though their part might seem small and insignificant, it was no less vital a link in the chain of spiritual history and progress than any other link. So I guess what I'm saying is you could sit there and think, oh man, I wish, I wish we were back in the time of Solomon when the, you know, the glory of the kingdom and all that. Of course, there were a bunch of things that Solomon was doing that were pretty weird, including really putting a burden on the people and taxing them and stuff like that. But you know, People always remember the former days. Instead, you think, hey, this is where I'm at right now. This is, we're back from exile after learning an important lesson. We're in the flow of prophecy rebuilding the temple. I mean, that's an exciting time to be alive. We live in an exciting time. And so we want to keep our focus on, hey, this is where we live right now. We don't live in the Jesus movement of the you know, early 70s or the late 60s or whenever. We live right now. And, and we want the glory of God as he's revealing it now. Looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of which you play a part always hastens the progress of God's building project. Peter said in his writing, seeing then that all these things be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. And he goes on to talk about holy living and, and, and the idea that we can hasten the coming of the Lord in the sense uh, of, of playing a part in his building project. I always like to, people say, well, how do you get the Lord to come back sooner? My answer is always, sooner or later, the last person who's going to get saved in this dispensation is going to get saved, and then the rapture is going to take place. And so if we're out there preaching the gospel, sending out missionaries, uh, supporting missionaries, it's going to hasten that sweep uh, of, of the gospel, which will bring that last person in, and we'll get out of here. Now, for the Jews, the building project was the temple, We have a different spiritual building project. As a Christian, your individual life is a spiritual building project. Your marriage, your family, your career, your hobbies, your recreations, all of these and everything else in your life are a building project that can be dedicated to God, that can be infused with the presence of the Lord. Lord, do you want me to be doing this? How do you want me to be doing this? With who do you want me to be doing this? I want to do this for your glory uh, and for eternal reward. And when I do it, I want to build using the methods and the materials revealed by God. I'm going to expect to encounter difficulties, but when I do, I should remain dedicated rather than allow difficulties to defeat me by halting my progress. And so, uh, like I said, you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, each individual Christian, and the church corporately is the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And so everything in your life, 
takes on the character of being part of God's building project that we want to build with the right materials and the right motives. And then as a Christian, your corporate life with other believers is also part of that building project. The church as a group is God's spiritual building on the earth. You're called to serve others and gifted in certain ways by God's spirit to do so. We're to work together using the right methods and materials to accomplish the spiritual service God has planned for us. Again, we should expect to encounter difficulties as a group. But when we do, we should remain dedicated rather than allow those difficulties to defeat us by halting our progress. And so we just need to submit ourselves to a review of our spiritual building project, both individually and corporately. And we should see that we've remained dedicated to building the projects that God has given us. If you haven't remained dedicated, then it's time to be rededicated. And that's done by simply obeying God. And as I said, if we're talking about building, uh, you know, our service to God, relationship with God, marriage, family, all these other things, plenty of instruction in God's word, right? I mean, and very clear instruction in God's word about how to do that. It's just a matter of us taking that step of obedience and, and not falling into the thing that, like the Jews and say, well, man, if I do that, I'm actually going to lose uh, ground. No, whenever you obey God, you're gaining momentum and you're gaining ground. Amen?